You're listening to Ready to Real Estate, a TREB podcast. Hear stories, uncover insights, and tune into interviews on key issues that impact realtors and all of us. Join us as we discover how people, properties, and communities all come together to build the future of real estate. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Ready to Real Estate. I'm your host, Jason Mercer, TREB's Chief Market Analyst. If you've been following along with the show, you'll know that we've taken several close looks at the need for increased housing supply in the GTA and broader Greater Golden Horseshoe. Of course, more supply means more homes, and new home construction will obviously be a key way of bringing on new supply, especially as we're likely to see record levels of immigration into Canada and the Greater Golden Horseshoe over the next few years. Joining me today to share his insights on the new home market, underlying drivers, our region's supply deficit, and the impact of COVID-19 is Peter Norman, Vice President and Chief Economist at Altus Group. Welcome, Peter, and thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Jason, and uh, uh, for having me on this program and, and for everybody at the Toronto Regional Real Estate Board. It's a real pleasure. Um, it's the beginning of the year. It's always a great time to look back and look ahead right around uh, right around now. And it's the beginning of, you know, what, what could be a, a challenging year. And, and we're looking back on a challenging year. So this is a particular, uh, a particularly important time to get together. So thank you very much, Jason. Thanks again. And, and I mean, Altus has always been a great partner of, uh, of Treb and, and certainly looking forward to, to continuing that as we move forward. And, and just sort of thinking about the new home market and as, as chief, chief economist for Altus, I, I know you're always looking at the latest economic, demographic, and, and pandemic-related data through the lens of housing and, and specifically new home construction. And, and from your perspective, just off the top, I mean, what have been the key economic and, and demographic drivers impacting housing demand and, and particularly new home construction over the last year? Yes. So the, the, the pattern for economic growth in the GTA and even across Ontario uh, recently has very much been the pattern and the story of the pandemic. Uh, you really can't uh, disintertwine those, uh, those two. We've had multiple waves of impact from the pandemic, and each of those waves has an impact on the economy, sort of an economic impact of sorts and, uh, and, a, and a pretty noticeable impact on the economy. And the housing market also sees that impact. Now, some of those housing impacts have been a little different than what we might have thought uh, given some of the disruptive influence, but it, it basically it has been a very volatile time. Um, and, that, and that volatility comes back to this issue about the uh, uh, waves of the pandemic. So I guess as an example, um, you know, we're looking, we're looking at periods of uh, employment declines. We're looking at periods of quite rapid employment increases. So employment increases that were, you know, very fast in 2020 in the primarily in around the summertime uh, in, in Toronto going into the early fall. Um, and in 2021, it was more in the spring, sort of after that second wave, I guess, um, that, that those were happening. And that's, you know, and then we, and that's where we saw, you know, sales of home sales, really new home sales anyway, really surging, you know, in, in response to those uh, conditions. So it's volatile, but the volatility has a, has a pretty, obvious uh, 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 antecedent. Sure. And I guess, you know, thinking about, you know, what we saw even in terms of of, uh, of immigration, I mean, obviously, as we move through the second half of 2020, and even the, the first, say, quarter of 2021, we've seen a real 
sort of drop off. And, and, and that made sense. I mean, we were seeing border closures around the world and public health guidelines instituted, um, you know, across uh, uh, North America and certainly uh, in Canada. But I, I found it interesting that as we moved through 2021 and, and we started to see a sort of a steady uptick in immigration, that's going to be a real driver of, of overall economic development and overall sort of recovery from this period of time as we move into, into 2022 and 2023. And, and, you know, looking forward, you know, through next year and even beyond, I mean, that's going to be a key driver of demand for, for ownership housing, I would think, and, and the new home market will, will help fill that, uh, that need. Yeah, the international uh, migration side of things really drives the GTA. But importantly, it's not just immigration per se, which is a uh, which is, of course, a very important component of international migration, uh, and one perhaps that ha that drives a little bit more the ownership market in a direct way. But uh, the, the the economy in the GTA really gets driven by overall uh, interna international flows of people, I guess you might say, sure. because uh, and two other components that are pretty important include the net temporary residents. Uh, in fact, you know, in many cases, temp foreign temporary workers. Uh, particularly in the kind of, uh, you know, tech sector or the TAMI sector in a in more general sense, um, really drive, have been really driving a lot of the growth that we've seen in the last several years. And even though the word temporary is kind of, you know, knocked on to that, uh, that group of people, it happens to be a uh, a cohort of people that has been continuously growing for quite a few years, including through the pandemic. And in fact, when we look at the... Um, you know, we look at what's happened through the pandemic, uh, immigration did get, you know, really got the wind knocked out of it for a number of months after March of 20, 2020. Uh, and now it's looking more normal. It certainly has been for a, a good chunk of 2021. But that net uh, foreign uh, worker uh, component has been, you know, really surging. And, uh, and that's, been, that's been important. So when we look, you know, perhaps not so much directly at the ownership market, but if we look at those trends in the rental market that are pretty well known at this point right. in time, uh, you know, quite, you know, a lot of softness in 2020, a lot of concern by certain actors uh, as we as we went through that period, and then, you know, some pretty substantive evidence that the, that the rental market uh, now has firmed up pretty significantly. I would say that some of those flows of uh, temporary foreign workers uh, and students, which of course are also back uh, foreign students, uh, both of those components have been sort of firming up that rental market. And where it goes by the rental market, I mean, that obviously has an important secondary effect on, on new home uh, demand overall, but also in particular for um, uh, condominium, newly built condominium demand, invest, the investor sector, uh, they're looking very closely at that rental demand as well. So those demographics are important. Um, and, and the fact that, um, I mean, I think in your intro, you sort of said, well, immigration is uh, coming back nicely. But when you take the sum of all those groups, uh, 2021 had a substantially larger uh, international component than, um, than what we were used to sure. uh, pre-pandemic, say like 2018, 2019 baseline. Right. And yeah, I couldn't agree more in terms of the temporary uh, migration and, and how that drives the, the, the rental market and, and, that, and that linkage back to, you know, especially on the high rise construction front. And I'm going to turn to, you know, condos uh, in, in a moment, but I want to maybe take a bit of a step back and, and, and turn specifically to, to new home construction and, and, and sort of think about, you know, during the first waves of, 
of, uh, of, of COVID in 2020, we saw increased demand for, for low-rise home types. And so, you know, how did low-rise development unfold as a result of this trend, both in terms of, of product offering and, and the geography of development as we moved, you know, into 2021? Was there sort of a marked, you know, shift or change in the, in the type of, of, of low-rise projects you were starting to see come online from a from a pre-construction perspective and sort of, you know, what does the future hold in light of that with regard to, you know, say single semis and towns and, and development, both in the GTA and even, you know, GGH? Yeah, Jason, the, you know, the low rise new home uh, picture right now is so much a picture of supply rather than demand. Um, I think that we can safely say there's strong low rise demand. Uh, for sure there is. And I think that that demand has been quite strong through the pandemic period. I think that it, that demand was quite strong in the years leading up to it. But that doesn't, um, that, that has hardly a bearing on uh, the actual numbers that we've seen in terms of new home sales because the market re is, is very, very supply constrained. I mean, we're, we're used to using the term supply constrained now uh, almost universally with housing, yeah. certainly in the GTA. And we say that about the resale market as well, uh, which is true, of course. And we say that about uh, uh, about uh, condos or at least in, in, in certain segments uh, in the GTA as well. But the low rise market is, uh, su is supply, is definitely supply constrained. Um, you know, this, to give your, to give your uh, listeners just a, a little bit of an insight to to remind them about where we're you know where we've been and 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 what we've been doing. I mean GTA and if going back to the 2000s, um, you know that period of time when kind of the oldest of the millennials were just uh, kind of moving into their into their home buying years. Um, the uh, and 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 Gen X was still playing a role. Um, at that point in time, new home sales were in the, you know, regularly in the in the uh, 35 to 40,000 uh, range. And, you know, it, as late as uh, 2015, we were still selling about, uh, you know, just shy of 20,000 uh, uh, single family new home sales. And then uh, the single family really, really, really shrunk uh, as we went into uh, into the just the pre pandemic period. Uh, right. We had fewer than 4,000 sales in 2018. Um, and, and all of that very much is, is supply constrained. In 2018, we, uh, you know, we saw, you know, the, the, the inventory that was available, this is pre-construction inventory, we saw, you know, going into, you know, the time period just before 2018, we saw it shrink from about, you know, 7,000 units at any given time down to fewer than 1,000 units. And that obviously right. drives, you know, what kind of sales there are going to be. Sure. Now, 2018, 2019, we did see a little bit of a relief on that. We saw some inventory start to build up. And then we start to see sales uh, uh, increasing as uh, as a result of that. But inventories, you know, really did start to uh, shrink again, starting at the beginning of the pandemic. And uh, and as of, I mean, we don't have the, quite the end of the year last year, but as of November, we were again back down to you know a, just a hair over a thousand units that are that are for sale that are available, like off plan, like a, like a pre pre construction. And if you've only got a, a thousand uh, a thousand units out there then that's going to be difficult to, uh, no matter how much demand you have, no matter how much immigration you have or whatever, it's gonna, that's going to have an influence. And I'll just say, you know, another thing which is kind of, you know, interesting because, 
you know, you've asked a little bit about the geography, but some of it also is the, I guess maybe the geometry of it yeah. uh, 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 in terms of in terms of how new home sales work. I mean, you've got sites um, where where inventory is coming forward. I mean, a developer is uh, is developing out a number of lots or a community of some sort, uh, and they and they become for sale, and uh, and there's a sales center and everything else. Um, but in the like taking the third quarter of 2021 as an example, only uh, like 18 projects across the GTA. Again, this is a market that under normal circumstances might have 20 or 30 single fam 20, 30,000 single family home sales in order to satisfy demand. Yeah. We only had 18 projects open at, at that point in time. Um, even, you know, even, even going back to 2020, we were more like about 50 projects per quarter, but, uh, but only 18 projects opened. And, uh, and there are still quite a few active projects across the GTA because some, some projects, you know, I mean, there might be one lot or two lots or whatever available in a project. So it's an active project. We have, you know, 197 active projects currently uh, in the single family sector across the GTA. That might sound pretty good. Like I think that if, you know, one of your listeners is a potential buyer, they, and they think, well, there's 200 different, two, almost 200 vendors out there. I can go and try and try and choose a, choose a home from them. Uh, but across the, across the board, those projects are 93% sold out. Yeah. Uh, and again, just going back to the beginning of the pandemic, just going back to the early 2020, that the norm was 86% sold out. So like, it's really, really a pretty dramatic change uh, in terms of those projects. Um, you asked a little bit about the geometry or the geography of it. Um, I will say that, I mean, it's almost hard to, uh, hard to uh, analyze anything more than just where it has the odd approval been eked out. <laughs> that might be that may be the only real the real thing. But we have seen a little bit more shift into the east, uh, into Durham region on the on the single family side. Um, and that's actually you know I mean uh, for those of us who kind of got our start in the in the uh, late 1980s boom and 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 the and the geography was what was happening at that time. That was a big time for Durham region as well because because of affordability issues at the end right. of that tail end of that affordability challenged period. Um, and I don't. You know, I think that that still is at play here, even though I think a lot of people would say that, a, you know, a, a one million dollar home in Durham isn't necessarily affordable, but it is relatively so to some of the uh, single family product that's coming forward, even in uh, York and uh, and Halt and some of the other areas where we see these this product. Um, but we have seen a kind of a shift uh, of, of, of uh, product into the into Durham. So in 2021, such as it was, so sales were were uh, were supply constrained, but such as they were, you know, almost a third of them were in Durham region uh, uh, now. And and that and just a few years ago, the norm was about 15 percent. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very interesting. I mean, you know, speaking of of affordability and 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 now, you know, affordability has been impacted by you know a lack of inventory. Like, you know, just just for 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 the listener's point of view, I mean, or, or, or interest, I mean, you pointed out there's a, you know, inventory is hovering around a thousand for, for, you know, available low rise products. And then you add to that, I mean, there's only 3,200 active listings in, 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 in Treb's MLS system for the GTA at the end of December too. Uh, I mean, that, you know, that's constrained. That's the lowest we've seen certainly, you know, since I've been covering the, 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 the housing market in the, in the, in the, in the greater Toronto area. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, we're moving into an election period, both at the provincial level and the, and the municipal level. And I, I, I think just those two numbers alone uh, go a long way and, and ought to convince policymakers that they need to be sort of coming forward with, uh, 
um, you know, policies and and, uh, and 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 insight as to how we'll see more supply come online and in, in the GTA and even broader greater Golden Horseshoe as we move forward, because you know it'll be key for you know the overall economic development of of, of the region. But I want to switch gears a little bit and, and and talk about the high rise side of the market too, because I mean we've really seen you know a night and day. I mean if you look at 2020 versus 2021. Um, essentially, it was a tale of two markets when it came to, to condo demand, versus in, both in terms of sales of, of, of ownership units, but also in terms of that secondary rental market, the investor held uh, uh, you know, condo units that, that, that are available to, for, for rent in the greater Toronto area. And so you know, with, with the resale condo market tightening up and, and the demand for investor held condo rentals really picking up um, in 2021, I mean, how have conditions changed with regard to, to high-rise development? I mean, is that you know sort of signaled uh, um, you know uh, more development in the in the pipeline as we move forward into 2022 and and, and 2023? Yeah, the, I think that the condo sector, the new condo condominium apartment sector, is uh, is faring somewhat better, or certainly a lot better than than the low-rise sector. Um, and I think that there's a lot of uh, interest and, and investment in that sector. I mean, not just from investor buyers, although I can speak specifically to that in a, in a second, but I mean, you know, amongst developers, you know, amongst, you know, uh, uh, planners, et cetera, there's a lot of interest in, in moving that product forward. 2021, uh, I think will turn out to be a, a really strong year for sales. I mean, again, through to November, we were at above 12,000. So it's going to be certainly, certainly the sales are going to be on par with 2018, 2019, um, but still some like quite a bit below the highs that we saw in 16 and 17, as an example. So, so, uh, so a year which is buoyant, but not, you know, not a record, but it does certainly as we as we move through the pandemic, show uh, signs of that kind of volatility or response to volatility that we saw before last year's uh, last year's sales, uh, you know, coming in at, uh, I guess, 90, uh, just just under 9700. So just under uh, 10,000 uh, units uh, on the condo side. Um, was a relatively weak year. You've got to go back, uh, you know, about two handfuls of years before you start yeah. to get into those numbers as well. So it was a relatively weak year, but it wasn't really a weak market per se as a as an annual market. Um, if you look at the peak in that market, which happened to be in the fall, which is pretty unusual for the sure. for the new condominium sales sector. I mean, the, it's usually a spring market, uh, even though it doesn't need to be. Every, even though yeah. people are going into heated sales centers, and even though these projects are being uh, approved at a pretty steady rate and all that kind of stuff. It is the case that uh, that that uh, 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 the developers make most of their sales in a, in uh, in the in the springtime. Uh, but that definitely didn't happen last year in 2020. In fact, you know, not only were sales curtailed during the early months of the pandemic, um, but many projects were delayed as well in terms of their approvals, just because of the you know, just because of the uh, what was going on in terms of the municipal approvals at the at that point in time, but sure. also in terms of a certain amount of uncertainty by by the developers going forward, we did not see you know we did not see developers anxious to uh, break ground in the in those early and that has an implication going forward in terms of how those um, uh, in terms of how those sales took place. But there was a lot of makeup that took place in in the fall. But to the extent that projects were delayed and stuff, that's that's a kind of a built-in. Uh, a break that took place at, uh, in, in that market. So I'd say that things are kind of back to, you know, relatively normal, I guess you might say, uh, at least back to those kinds of 2018, 19, uh, 19 type range for, uh, 
for, for the condominium apartment. Uh, we are seeing, I mean, you asked about the geography a little bit on the single family side. We are seeing that, um, that uh, condominium apartment really democratize out of the city of Toronto. That's probably the big, you know, the big trend. Uh, I'm not talking about in the very short term. I just mean sort of like sales in the last two, three years, projects, I guess, projects and sales in the last, you know, two, three years relative to, you know, the mid-decade or the early part of the of the 2010s. Uh, we're seeing a lot more product that is in uh, in in uh, York region in particular. Mm-hmm. Durham picking up a little bit. There's not a ton of product out there, um, but Halton and, and, and Peel as well. So uh, we're starting to see that share in the city of Toronto. You know, it has been continuously uh, 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 kind of declining and that continues to be the case. Yeah, I think it's really interesting, and and uh, you know, I, I really like the the, the geography discussion because it used to be you know thinking about uh, condominium apartments. You know, obviously the, the city of Toronto was sort of the main topic of conversation with some nodes of development um, out Mississauga way and and in some parts of, of of southern York region, but that's you know really expanded, and, and and it brings me to the next thing I wanted to discuss because as we're starting to see um, obviously continued demand for for low rise product, whether you're talking about the the, the resale market or the new home market in a very constrained supply setting um, and at the same time you're starting to see um, you know a greater proliferation of of, uh, of, of of condo development and demand in in in, in some of the suburban regions as well um, but we've heard a lot about you know the missing middle over the last few years and, and that discussions really come up as as we've you know realized uh, uh, that that you know supply is sort of a key factor impacting affordability in in, in our region and, and will likely continue to do so over the next few years. But you know, we've heard a lot about you know bringing online um, you know housing types to sort of bridge that gap between you know single-family homes and, and condominium apartments, whether they're talking about plexes or or stack towns or even getting into things like laneway housing and what have you. Yet you know we're talking a lot about it, but you know in terms of bringing that type of housing online on mass, there's obviously impediments. Whether you're talking about the approval process, whether you're talking about um, you know how that's greeted by you know existing you know uh, uh, neighborhood groups and, and and what have you throughout the, the greater Toronto area. Like, what do you think the future holds for that type of development? I mean, it's gained traction from a, a policy and, and, and research perspective. Um, you know, what do you think needs to happen for it to gain traction in terms of breaking ground on some of these types of housing? Well, it's, you know, if we, I guess if we had the solution to that, it was, we, 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 yeah. we would fix all of our affordability problems. Just to start off with the miss, the missing middle, the missing middle per se uh, is a kind of a roving definition, right? I mean, it's a little bit like the d- definition of the middle class in federal politics. You know, it really, it just, it just sticks with whatever, you know, you want to be, you want to be pushing or promoting or, uh, or discussing. Um, so there's a real range. So I've, I've seen it being used for, you know, 10, 12 story mid rise uh, type product on the avenues. I've seen it, you know, apply to uh, kind of, you know, gentle density, smart infill in yellow belt uh, zones, like where somebody takes out a house or two and puts up, uh, you know, some walk up, uh, walk up, uh, a low-rise apartment, um, and 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 I've seen it being used as well for you know the replacement of some single you know of, of larger single families for smaller ones or whatever, or at least the sure. potential to do that. So there's a lot, there's a there's a lot there's a there's a there's a there's a broad band of stuff that can be done there. But I want to go. I just want to back up a little bit and on the because we were discussing the supply before, and I want to mention something and then bring that back into missing middle. Um, 
you know, and you're and and in particular because you were talking about policy and what can be done and you know what's the feasibility of you know le using these missing metal levers. But if we take ourselves, Jason, if we take ourselves back about 20 years to the to the birth of the growth plan, you probably remember that pretty yeah. well, uh, pretty well yourself. At that point in time, as as a reminder. Um, you know, the government sat down, they did a pretty good job of predicting what the what the uh, population would be over the next 20 years. Uh, uh, they used some consultants. And in fact, they got it almost exactly right. I mean, the population growth that they were using as a as a basis for the growth plan is almost exactly what happened in, in the in the 20 years subsequent. And uh, and then they uh, did a very good job of demand of, of demand modeling out how much housing is needed. And they did that for the based on that population. Uh, and then they put in place the plan that says, you know, where that housing should go and where it shouldn't go. I mean, that's basically what the what the growth plan is. But the province at that point then turned it over to the municipalities, of course, and there was gridlock in terms of the way that that those municipalities were able to bring their plans into conformity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's a long tail. But in the end, in terms of the single family housing that the growth plan itself, with all of their wisdom, said was required and actually put in place the policies required to, to make that single family housing come, come to life, including like a significant amount of infill housing. Uh, all those policies were in place. Uh, but in the end, we've ended up after 20 years, 175 thousand units short of their expectations of what of what was needed. Uh, so where did it go wrong? <laughs> How did we end up being 175,000 units short, single family units uh, short over over that period of time? And and we're not on a course correction at this point in time. It'll be a, right. a higher number when we have this conversation in another 10 years. Uh, right. How are we doing? It's because, you know, green, greenfield sites were a lot harder to uh, to get approved. Uh, now that was part and parcel, you know, what the growth plan was trying to do. It was trying to say, make sure you explore infill before you do greenfield. But, you know, municipalities jumped on the idea about not, not approving the greenfield, but they didn't take any of the policies or they did a very poor job taking any of those infill policies that were enlivened uh, through the growth plan and, and bringing them to fruition. And a lot of those are the sorts of things that, you know, the missing middle people are talking about now. I mean, effective, uh, effective growth of units that are either single, like smaller single family or denser single family or gentle density single family or, uh, or uh, uh, non high rise uh, apartments of sorts, walk ups, etc. And that's sort of what we're talking about in terms of missing middle. So the policy environment is kind of in place there. But when we talk about the GTA and, you know, uh, uh, you know, nearly 40 municipalities and all this kind of stuff and all the and regions and all the policies, uh, it's, it's a matter not just of having the right policies in place, whether that's from the province or uh, provincial leadership or anywhere else, but it's also a matter of having, uh, you know, municipalities willing to to approve some of these projects. Um, where it comes to bringing uh, infill projects into, uh, into neighborhoods, for example, uh, a lot of planners think that's, that, that's a good idea. A lot of economists uh, think that's a good idea. I think it's a good idea. You probably think it's a good idea. Uh, there's, uh, a, you know, at, at some level, a lot of municipal politicians speak, uh, speak lip service to that as well. But in the end, where it comes down to, you know, app, on an application by application basis, neighbors don't yeah. like it. Uh, politicians respond to, uh, to to those types of pressures. And in the end, the, they, the, you know, a lot of these projects just don't come to fruition. 
Yeah, and I think that's, you know, I, I think that's a, a really good history lesson. And I think there's a lot of uh, that can be taken from, you know, what we saw in terms of, 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 of single family development or lack thereof over the last, you know, couple of decades and sort of apply that. And, and, and it, it certainly helps people understand, you know, the, the, the impediments that, that exist or, or certainly can exist when we're talking about, you know, bringing online, you know, I guess a new type of housing that's even less familiar to, 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 to people, you know, especially in existing neighborhoods. And, and so, you know, there's certainly challenges there. And, and it goes a long way, I think, to, to explain why when we're talking about, you know, policies that are pointed at the housing market, why sometimes it's a lot easier to see, you know, demand side policies come online versus supply side because, you know, supply is really hard and it involves uh, a lot of different stakeholders, um, you know, in that uh, in that policymaking process. Yeah. Let me just say one one other thing. I don't like to do. I'm not trying to derail your podcast, but I no. but I but I do want to say one other thing that kind of uh, dovetails into there and an interesting lesson. Um, and it, this, is to, this speaks to the missing middle or densification within existing neighborhoods. Sure. One of the challenges that we have, and you've heard about this before and people have talked about it, is you know, the issue that we, ha that we have single family housing, which is housing uh, elderly people that may be underutilizing that house. Um, I mean, that's a, that's, a, that's a fact across Ontario. In fact, if you look at Ontario in 2016, and I, and I think it's, it's probably no different, if not a little worse today. If you look at uh, Ontario in 2016, uh, there were a million homes yeah. in, uh, in Ontario that had three or more bedrooms that had either two or one person in it. Uh, headed by a person over 65. So, you know, I mean, nobody nobody wants a policy that that moves people that that, you know, co coerces people out of their homes. That's not it. People have a right to their homes. There's no problem with that. But the question is how many of those people are in their neighborhoods because that's where they want to be and there isn't really good viable options for them to move to that's not a high-rise condo that a lot of elderly yeah. people do not want for a lot of reasons or a you know a one bedroom plus den or whatever that when they when they really want something that's two or three bedrooms and and that's where the missing middle comes as well and that's then takes us back to single family we need it we have a deficit massive like a critical deficit of single family which is you know 100 percent the fingerprints behind the uh, affordability crisis that we're in right now uh, and to free up a million single family homes or a, or a significantly chunk, significant chunk of them even a even a small chunk of them would do a lot in order to try to free in, in order to try to address that issue and but to free it up doesn't mean coercing people out of their homes and it doesn't mean um uh, you know, it does, well, anyway, it doesn't mean that. What it means is providing the right kinds of opportunities for people to move. And, you know, study after study shows that people want to stay more or less in their communities. And we, and the missing middle will certainly address that as well and, and address right through the process the affordability issue. Yeah, I, I mean, I 100% I agree with that. And if people go to treb.ca and look at, you know, our past uh, market year review and outlook reports, they'll, they'll find in, in one of those reports, uh, you know, the exact type of research you're talking about, looking at that uh, that gap between, you know, bedrooms and and and, and actually what's being used uh, in, in, in some of these homes. And, and, and certainly, you know, if, if there were uh, uh, or was a greater diversity of, of a home types available, you'd see a lot of people that would probably jump at the opportunity 
opportunity to a remain in their neighborhood that they're in. They're used to it. They like it. That's where they've uh, um, you know uh, grown up and 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 seen their family grow and change over time. Um, but certainly, they'd like a, a home that better meets their needs today. And and you know it would allow people who are looking for that uh, hard to find single family home um, you know meet their housing needs as uh, as well. So it makes it makes total sense. And 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 hopefully we can move in that direction over the next few years. And I want to switch gears a little bit, just sort of a final question as, as we wrap up. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on, on sort of the new normal following the pandemic? I mean, we've talked a lot about housing and even the, the, the geography of, of housing, but I want to sort of link that to, to also the commercial real estate market, which you also uh, cover at Altus. And I guess specifically, if you think about, you know, sort of office, like what, what do you see the new normal being sort of post-pandemic when we think about, you know, how people are going to be working you know, whether they're going to be going in the office or working from home or, or, or some sort of hybrid. I mean, what are your thoughts on that and how will it influence people's housing choices, you know, over the next few years? Yeah, I mean, that's a huge topic, even, you know, in and of itself. Um, you know, and I'll say on the housing side, and I didn't really, met, we, don't, we, haven't, we didn't really touch on this as we were going through the different parts of it, but I'll just say kind of in summary, to some extent, despite the fact we've had all this volatility and we've had a lot of economic um, uh, impacts, whether that be to the unemployment rate or employment growth or small business, uh, et cetera, we've had all these imp negative impacts. Um, the household balance sheet side has been very strong as a result of um, federal and provincial, primarily federal payments, right? And so that's one of the things that's really salt, you know, saved housing through this period of like negative economic shocks. Now in the uh, commercial real estate sector, particularly the office sector, there's a different dynamic at play. I mean, certainly we've had, you know, businesses that have been able to retain their leases and stay in place because of some federal support. So there is that dynamic to a certain extent. But the idea about remote working uh, is uh, is a really a really massive question uh, overhanging the sector right now. Um, you know, we have about 15 million square feet of space and office space in the GTA in the pipeline, like right. like not not occupied or under or finished right now, but it, but somewhere in the pipeline, uh, ready to get finished. So we know a lot more supply is coming, like a significant amount of supply is coming in the in the in the in the years ahead. Um, and so the question is, you know, is demand going to, uh, oh, sorry. And we also know, like, from whatever baseline going forward over the next 10, 15 years or whatever, demand for office space is going to rise from some baseline uh, because the number of companies are going to grow and move in and expand, expanding their employment base, et cetera. But what we don't know now is where that baseline is. We don't know right now whether... Uh, the average company in downtown Toronto or anywhere in Toronto uh, is going to end up at the end of this whole uh, this whole shuffle with 100% of the space that they had, you know, going into the pandemic, 80% of it, you know, 70%, 60%. And obviously that range that I just gave, and that may not even be the full range, that range I just gave, yeah. um, uh, uh, multiply it by across all the space uh, means that there's a you know, is a potential delta of, you know, million, tens of millions of square feet uh, of potential excess, uh, excess uh, uh, supply. So, you know, I mean, I don't, I'm not trying to wrap up this podcast on a negative front, but what I do say is that this is an area where there's more uncertainty just because we don't know where that baseline is. Um, now, we've been pretty, you know, I mean, 
we've been we've been we've been in a pretty good position uh, going through this pandemic in in Toronto. Like even though we only, we're still only sitting, I mean, leave leave aside the last few weeks of Omicron, but even going through the fall, we were still you know sitting we were sitting at about uh, twenty to twenty five percent. Um, activity downtown like where people like actual bodies going down during the during the week to uh you know to occupy their offices um only 20 like 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 so 75 percent of people still were not coming downtown uh and yet at the same time i mean vacancy rates have gone up downtown um uh, but they haven't actually gone you know they haven't really gone outside of the range of like you know the normal long-term up, ups and downs um and new leasing activity has been you know relatively uh, good. I mean, you can point to a lot of successes that some that some of this new pipeline supply I'm, I've been talking about have have had in terms of uh, leasing up some new some new space. So there's lots of like green shoots out there. Uh, if you talk to people in the industry, they're relatively optimistic that there'll be a kind of a new hybrid model or whatever and dynamism. But basically, fundamentally, people want to be downtown. And I, you know, and I like that kind of optimism as well. But as an economist, I can't get the numbers out of my head, which is to say that if every company, you know, decides that they're even going to shrink by 20% of their footprint uh, downtown, if not a lot more, uh, then that's going to that's going to be, you know, years of excess supply for the market. And so we're going to have to kind of come to that reckoning, I think, as we as we move through the well, you know, through the through the years ahead anyway. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a good place to end off. I mean, I think you made some good points that, you know, over the next decade, you're going to see people looking to move to the, the, the greater Toronto area and broader GGH, and you're going to see companies looking to, to, to move here as well to take advantage of the diverse population base that we have and the, the diverse, you know, talent base that, that, that we benefit from in the, in, the, in the greater Toronto area. So certainly, you know, the demand for residential space, uh, the demand for, for commercial space will be there, but at the same time, you know, at least over the short to medium term there's certainly some some unknowns that we're going to have to be mindful of they're just driven by you know what we don't know yet about how how things are going to unfold you know with this pandemic and and hopefully the the, the post-pandemic period that uh, that follows it so you know peter i want to thank you very very much for your for your invaluable insights uh, that you provide us today. I mean, Altus has always been a, a, a great partner uh, of Treb, and we're looking forward to continuing that um, over the over the next number of years. So again, thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me here, Jason. And don't miss an episode. Subscribe to Treb's Ready to Real Estate podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to all of you for joining us, and we'll see you next time. That's it for us. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media and visit our website, treb.ca. That's T-R-R-E-B.ca to find market insights and more. This has been another episode of Ready to Real Estate, and thanks for tuning in. Mm-hmm.